0: Let's read it together, Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 14, uh, verse 1, and I usually do the ESV, but I've got the CSV here, I like some of the uh, renderings a little bit better, Um, and uh, so we're going to read 1 Samuel 14, verse 1. That same day, Saul's son, Jonathan, said to the attendant who carried his weapons, come on. Let's cross over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. However, he did not tell his father. Saul was staying under the pomegranate tree in Migron on the outskirts of Gebeah. The troops with him numbered about 600. Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod, was also there. He was the son of Ahitub, the brother of Ichabod, son of Phineas, son of Eli, the Lord's priest at Shiloh. But the troops did not know that Jonathan had left. There, was, there were sharp columns of rock on both sides of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine garrison. One was named Bozes, and the other was named Sene. One stood to the north in front of Michmash, and the other stood to the south in front of Giba. Jonathan said to the attendant who carried his armor, Come on, let's cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will help us. Nothing can keep the Lord, Yahweh, from saving, whether by many or by few. His armor-bearer responded, do what is in your heart. Go ahead. I am completely with you. All right, Jonathan replied, we'll cross over to the men and then let them see us. And if they say, wait until we reach you, then we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come on up, then we'll go up because the Lord has handed them over to us. That will be our sign. They let themselves be seen by the Philistine garrison, and the Philistines said, Look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've been hiding. The men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor-bearer, Come on up, and we'll teach you a lesson. We'll show you something. They said, Follow me, Jonathan told his armor-bearer, for the Lord has handed them over to Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and his feet with his armor-bearer behind him. Jonathan cut them down, and his armor-bearer followed and finished them off. In the, that first assault, Jonathan and his armor bearer struck down about 20 men in a half-acre field. Terror spread through the Philistine camp and the open fields, uh, and the open fields to all the troops. Even the garrison and the, and the raiding parties were terrified. The earth shook, and terror spread from God. When Saul's watchman in Gibeah of Benjamin looked, they saw panicking troops scattering in every direction. So Saul said to the troops with him, Call the roll, muster the troops, and determine who has left us. They called the roll and saw that Jonathan and his armor bearer were gone. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. Lord, we need you. Apart from you, we can do nothing at all. So I ask that in your kindness, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would work in us this evening, that you would equip us and build us up through this passage of Scripture, that it would come alive to our hearts and convict us of sin as needed and encourage us as needed and comfort us as needed. We commit this time to you. I ask for your help. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and for his glory. Amen. Amen. Faithfulness always requires courage. Faithfulness always requires courage. The courage to defy those powers that would seek to rule over us in the place of God. We see this kind of faithfulness, this kind of courageous faithfulness, if you will, in Daniel, in the Old Testament. We see it in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And in particular, in this account of Jonathan and his armor bearer, we get a glimpse into some of the key components of this faithful, biblical, godly courage. We need to understand what this looks like, what courage is. We need to distinguish it from false views of courage that are in the world. And as I already mentioned, the time is coming, and we already find ourselves, I believe, in such a time in our particular nation and this culture and the Western world uh, where it is especially important that we be reminded of what it looks like to be faithfully courageous for the glory of God. Revelation 21, 7 through 8, it says, To the one who overcomes, the one who overcomes will inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But to the cowardly and the unbelieving and the detestable and the the murderers and the sexually immoral and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their place will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. That is the second death. What's the very first thing on this list of sins of unfaithfulness? The cowardly, right? So, faithfulness, courage, faithful courage is not just important for Christian living. But we could say that courage, being courageous, not being cowardly, is not only something that matters for the Christian life, it is absolutely essential for living a faithful Christian life. And so I want to look at eight truths in this passage. This is not going to be the typical exposition, verse by verse, of the passage, like is often done here, like I often do. Um, but we're going to look at it a little bit more topically, but drawing from the text some examples of what faithful courage is like. And the first one is that faithful courage rests in God's ability Not ours. Faithful courage rests in God's ability, not ours. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, verse 7 Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Jonathan's courage is not based on his own bravado, it's not based on his own sense of superiority, his own strength, his own fighting techniques, his ability to handle a weapon. His courage is not based on that. His courage rests in the reality that God is able to save, whether by many or by few. That ultimately, God doesn't even need us, but he chooses to use us. And he can choose to use one person to accomplish his will just as well as he can use a million. Faithful courage rests in God's ability, not in ours. Number two. Faithful courage flows from an understanding that the victory has already been won. Faithful courage flows from an understanding that the victory has already been won. Notice this in the second part of verse 12. Jonathan says to his armor bearer, Follow me, for the Lord has handed them over to Israel. Now, have the Philistines been defeated yet in time in history? At this moment when Jonathan is speaking? No, they're still out there. They're still out there with their weapons, threatening the people of Israel. They're still intimidating. They're still um, presenting this this major threat to the peace and safety of the people of of Israel, to God's people. And yet Jonathan says, the Lord has handed them over. Past tense. (laughs) Jonathan recognizes that God is ultimately sovereign, that God, that the victory belongs to God, that he will ultimately triumph over his enemies. Faithful courage flows from an understanding that the victory has already been won. Biblical courage is seeing the danger ahead in light of God's ability, in light of God's victory, and acting accordingly. As followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is so important for us as we engage in spiritual warfare We are not fighting for victory, but rather from victory. Right? We are fighting from a place of victory that has already been won by Jesus on the cross. What did Jesus say as he hung on that tree? It is finished. It is finished. He has already won the victory. He's conquered sin and Satan and death and hell. He's triumphed over them. So we fight from a place of victory. These two men believe that God is able to deliver His people from the hand of their enemies, and they demonstrate that belief by stepping out of the place of personal comfort and personal security and trusting that God may use them to bring about His deliverance. Number three, faithful courage does not presume upon God. Also in verse seven, faithful courage does not presume upon God. doesn't doesn't try to play God. It doesn't tell God what he's supposed to do. It recognizes that God is king, that God is sovereign. Notice what Jonathan says in verse 7. He says, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised men. It may be, or perhaps. That's a good translation. If your Bible says, it may be, or perhaps, it's not a mistake. It's not a lack of faith on Jonathan's part. Like, I don't know, maybe God's going to rescue us, help us. Well, Jonathan, Jonathan has tremendous faith in this passage, and we see that later on there's, there's more confidence and, 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 and uh, certainty about what God is going to do. We see that early on that confidence is based on the fact that God is free to do what he wants to do and to work how he wants to work. And so Jonathan's courage is based upon this reality that he is not God. In other words, biblical courage is humble courage. It's not based on our own abilities, it's based on God's ability. And therefore, it's always going to be carried out, it's always going to be um, lived out in submission to another, in submission to King Jesus. All of the preceding actions are grounded in this statement concerning God's sovereign power. God is certainly able to use us to do this, Jonathan is saying. We know that God can do this through us. It needs to be done, so let's go for it. <laughs> oh, that that would be our attitude more often. And we wouldn't be concerned about the outcome. We leave the outcome with God. We trust Him that He can use our faithfulness, whether it's immediately, whether it's a year from now, whether it's the next generation reaping the benefits of our faithfulness. That's up to God. We've got to be faithful and trusting that He's the one who's working all these things together after the counsel of his own will. He's working all things together for the good of those who love him have been called according to his purpose. Number four, faithful courage doesn't seek its own glory. This is related. These kind of build on each other. uh, Several of them do. Faithful courage doesn't seek its own glory. Jonathan is convinced of his own insignificance. I love this about Jonathan. He's such an example to us of one who could have fought for him for his way to be king. I mean, he had the traits of a godly king. He was the son of the king. And yet, Jonathan, we see as we look at the broader context, is not concerned about his own glory. He's not concerned about himself becoming king he's wanting to exalt the one that god has chosen as king. And he supports David. Even though in his flesh could have easily said, "No. This is my right. My father has been anointed. I'm going to be the next king." Jonathan supports God's anointed and he doesn't he's not concerned about being the center. He's not concerned about being the superstar. He's not concerned about getting the glory for himself. He's being faithful to exalt another. There's a great contrast in this whole section of uh, 1 Samuel between Saul and Jonathan. This whole chapter contrasts the two of them. Faithfulness versus pragmatism versus someone that's trying to do things in their own strength for their own glory. By their own means trying to attach God onto that and expecting God to work around the way he thinks things should work. Jonathan, one who's faithful, submitted, seeking to glorify God, seeking to exalt the kingship of David, not his own. Number five, faithful courage requires entering into battle. We are not passive in spiritual warfare. We are called to resist the devil. Right? We're called to resist the devil, and he will what? Flee from us. He will flee from us. The men of the garrison called to Jonathan. This is verses 12 to 13. And to his armor bearer. They said, Come on up and we'll teach you a lesson. Jonathan says, Follow me. And then in verse 13, it says, Jonathan climbed up using his hands and his feet with his armor bearer behind him. Jonathan cut them down, and his armor bearer followed and finished them off. This is action. This is not passivity too often. In American Christianity, we become passive. We've been lulled to sleep by entertainment and consumerism rather than actively engaging in the battle before us. Faithful courage always requires taking a risk, stepping out. You can't just sit back. May God help us as those opportunities come up to speak truth to our neighbor's life, to a co-worker, to a family member, that we, would just, we wouldn't just sit back in silence, not wanting to offend, that we would be bold, be humble. Often our, our humility is going to look like arrogance to the world. To say that Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father sounds like arrogance to the world, but it's actually the path, it's possible to say it in an arrogant way. But saying that Jesus Christ is the only way, if, we're, if we believe that, because we're submitted to Scripture, and that's what Scripture says, that's not arrogance, that's humility. I saying I don't have things figured out. I'm submitting to the God who made us. I'm not trying to determine reality for myself. So faithful courage requires speaking up, acting, taking action, entering into battle. Stepping out of our comfort zone, stepping out of our security, being willing to say what needs to be said, leaving the results to God. Also, number six, faithful courage requires sacrifice. Faithful courage requires sacrifice. Now, Jonathan risks sacrificing something pretty significant in this story, He risks sacrificing a key relationship in his life in order to be obedient to God. Who's that relationship with? It's Father's Day today. (laughs) Happy Father's Day. There is, it's right and it's biblical to honor our father and our mother. Jonathan sought to honor his father, it seems. We see that later on in this passage. Seems like he's seeking to do that while also wanting to be faithful to God. But there are times, and Jesus told us this, right? Those who would come after me have to be willing to what? Not only deny, but hate, right? Your mother and your father, your brother and your sister. There is a time when our actions that are driven by faithfulness, that are driven by a confidence in who God is and his ability, are going to look like hatred to our family members who stand in opposition to the truth of God's Word. And while family is one of God's greatest gifts, something that we should never neglect, seek to disciple our children, and reach out to our lost loved ones, there are times when faithfulness will require the sacrifice even of family. Obviously not something we take lightly. but it may be that standing up for truth, standing up for what's right, standing up for for what God has declared to be true in his word uh, will risk cutting ourselves off from people around us that we care about a lot. So may God help us in those moments to be loving, to be kind, to be patient, to be gracious, The fruit of the Spirit would be displayed in us. There wouldn't be any sort of haughty arrogance or pride or self-righteousness. But when push comes to shove, that we would be faithful to God, that we fear God more than man. Number seven. Faithful courage refuses to be intimidated by the taunts of the world. We see this in verse 12. Come on up. The Philistines say to Jonathan, come on up and we'll teach you a lesson. We're going to show you guys something. (laughs) We're going to teach you guys a lesson. You think you're going to take us on? Come see what we got. It's a taunt. It's clearly a taunt. How does Jonathan respond to this, to these guys basically making fun of them and indirectly making fun of their God? as Goliath did. How does Jonathan respond? Does he cower in fear? oh, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have, been so, shouldn't have been so bold just to come out here. I apologize. No, Jonathan basically says, bring it on. <laughs> like, let's go, armor bearer. We're going to go up and take these guys out. Too often in the church today i think we've bought into this mr rogers kind of christianity where we think that being kind and loving and gracious means always just rolling over and apologizing every time the world demands it of us and we live in a culture that's constantly demanding apologies for saying the wrong thing for believing the wrong thing at least when it comes to christians and if we've been arrogant if we've been rude can apologize for that, but don't ever apologize for speaking the truths of of God's Word. Don't ever apologize for saying what the Bible says, right? So don't be intimidated by the taunts of the world. We serve the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. We're in submission to Him. We want to walk with a sense of His presence and His awareness, not, not trying to be like a broker for Jesus that, well, let's try to like find some middle ground so you can Maybe understand where I'm coming from and we can kind of water things down. No. We must fear God rather than man. And when we fear God, we're not afraid, we won't be afraid of anything else or anyone else. The solution to the fear of man, the solution to, to, to uh, becoming a coward who just wimps out every time we experience some opposition is fearing God more than we fear man. Walking in the fear of of Yahweh, and the fear of the Lord. So faithful courage refuses to be intimidated by the taunts of the world. If we are truly kind and loving people, then we will speak the truth to our neighbors, to those around us, even if it offends them. And that truth, whether that's about Jesus being the only way to heaven, whether that's about the reality that men are men and can't become women, and women are women and can't become men, whether that's other gender and sexuality issues that are going around in the culture, um, whether it's about ethnicity, whatever it is, that we would be guided by Scripture, that we'd have this all-encompassing worldview that's saturated with the Word of God, that's grounded in the truth revealed to us by our Creator and our Savior, and that we would be completely committed to that and allowing that to shape what we think about absolutely everything from education to um, parenting to politics um, to economics and where, what kind of job we do and what we do with our money, that all of those things would come under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So it's important to say that in all of this to emphasize we're not fighting the world with physical weapons, but we are waging war against the satanic powers and lies that hold them in bondage. Right? 2 uh, Corinthians 10.3 For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. We can't destroy arguments and bring them into submission to Jesus through passivity. It's going to require action. It's going to require fearing God more than, than man. We cannot, brothers and sisters, we, we need to be gracious. We need to be loving. We need to be patient. We need to submit to Jesus so that the fruit of the Spirit of Jesus would be displayed in our lives. But we cannot allow the world to intimidate us into submission to their subjective standards, which, by the way, change from day to day. If we do, we will fail to be salt and light. If we try to cater to the felt needs of society around us, it's good to be aware of the culture. We're called to be missionaries in our communities, but if we try to cater to those things, if we try to be like the world, well, one, James says, anyone who seeks to become a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. That's pretty serious. Is that enmity with God? And also Jesus said that we're to be the salt and light in the world, the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And salt that loses its saltiness, it's not good for anything any any longer. It's thrown away and trampled on. That's what's happening to a lot of the church today, I believe. We're going to be effective. We've got to remain faithful to God's word, to the truth of his word, and not be intimidated by the taunts of the world. Their worldview is crumbling. It doesn't make sense. Darwinian evolution is crumbling, even in the scientific community. Yet some Christians have bowed the knee to that. It totally contradicts the clear teaching of Scripture that everyone, that Apostle Paul says, validating the historicity of Adam and Eve, that all of us have descended from one man. And yet there's these little compromises that lead us away. We need to not be intimidated by people who have PhDs and who seem like they have power and influence. That We somehow begin to let little things go in order to appease them, in order to appeal to them, in order to reach them. Then we're becoming like Saul and using pragmatic means to win the world. We need to disciple our children towards this kind of courage that we're talking about, a humble boldness rooted in the gospel and committed to the scriptures as their ultimate authority. The secular culture exalts the individual as his own ultimate authority. And many Christians have unwittingly been affected by this thinking as well. This removes the fear of God from hearts and leads us to flounder in a sea of uncertainty. C.S. Lewis put it like this, in a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and demand the function. We make men without chests, and we expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and bid the geldings be fruitful. In case you didn't catch that, it's like, we neuter the dog and expect puppies. Rip out the heart. So there's no more ultimate moral foundation in reality. There's no ultimate truth, and then we expect courage. It doesn't work that way. We need to teach our children that there are absolute standards of goodness, beauty, and truth, and that there are real and glorious differences between a man and a woman that go beyond mere bio- biology, that Jesus is king over every area of our lives, that he is so sovereign, as Kuyper put it, over every square inch of the universe. Number eight, the last one. Faithful courage is often used by God to rally others. Faithful courage is often used by God to rally others to action. We see a historical example of this in the, Re- in the Reformation with men like Martin Luther and John Calvin and others that God raised up who experienced tremendous opposition from the most powerful institutions of their day, the most powerful institution of the day. Roman Catholic Church, and yet they feared God more than man, and God used their faithfulness to rally others to the cause, to bring an awakening in Europe. There a number of examples we could point to to that, but faithful courage is often used by God. Again, we don't presume upon him. We don't say, you do this and God has to do this. No, it may not be in our generation. It might be in the next. Maybe in ways that we can't see until We see Jesus face to face and we begin to understand how he used our faithfulness. But faithfulness will be used by God in one way or another for the glory of his name. And often that will be in in rallying others to the cause, to return to faithfulness. And this chapter is interesting. There are three groups of of people represented, apart from Jonathan and his armor bearer, who is certainly in the in the group of those who are faithful. We see that there are the, the compromised the capitulators, those who are capitulating, and the cowardly. Uh, They're all here. I think we probably could identify those groups, even in the church today. We want to make sure we take the log out of our own eye before we do that, before we think about that. But the compromise, the first group we come across in verse 20, those who are still fighting on the right side, at least in theory, but have begun to build on some faulty foundations. Uh, again, in chapter 13, Saul has strayed from God's design and order and has attempted to gain victory over the enemy through his own pragmatic means. But Jonathan ignites within these men a return to genuine and effective engagement with the enemy. Notice verse 20. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was great confusion. God uses Jonathan's faithfulness. To rally those who had been compromised, to bring them back into genuine combat. Then we come across the, those who are capitulating. Who are they? Notice verse 21. Now the Hebrews who had been with the whom? The Hebrews who had been with the Philistines. Who are the Philistines? Good guys or bad guys in the story? Bad guys, right? The Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were were with Saul and Jonathan. These Hebrews had not only given up resistance to the enemy, they had assimilated into the enemy ranks. But they too were stirred to repentance and action by Jonathan and his armor bearer's faithfulness. Oh, that God would use us to stir to action those who have basically gone onto the other side. Those who have given up Those who have thought that some other means, apart from the gospel and the word of God, we can somehow transform the world. That we would be faithful and that those people would be rallied anew, that they would return to a confidence in the scriptures and placing their their hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then we see in verse 22, the cowardly. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. Never, we must never underestimate the power of godly courage. Those who are on the sidelines, those who are waiting fearfully for the end of the world, somewhere up in northern Idaho or um, Montana, We're just going to wait for the rapture. No. Maybe even those individuals can be rallied by the faithfulness of those who say, we believe that God may yet bring revival in our generation. We believe that we need to keep working. It's not up for us to determine the time of the Lord's return. It's up for Him to determine. And we're going to keep working, and we're going to keep preaching, and we're going to keep believing that God is able to do today, whether by many or by few, what he has done in the past. What would have happened if guys like Martin Luther and Calvin and and others in the the Great Awakening later on, the Wesleys and Whitfield, what would have happened if they have stood back and said, you know what, I think things are pretty bad right now. What would have happened if Spurgeon a little bit later on said, "Ah, things are pretty bad, you know, there was... French Revolution not long ago. There was a civil war in America not long ago. Many are turning away and apostatizing here in England. What would have happened if Spurgeon had said, I, I think Jesus is coming back probably any day now, so I'm just going to kind of not really engage too much with what's going on. We're not going to try to help the orphans and widows in our city and, and uh, make disciples who will, who will train up their children in the next generation. Because we're just going to kind of, it's, it's probably too late at this point. And I know I'm exaggerating a bit. Most believers aren't to that extreme. But I think there is a mentality that sinks in that allows us to fall into this very pessimistic mindset. And while we don't presume upon God, I think it's important for us to be motivated to work towards revival and reformation in every generation, believing that God may yet choose We know this gospel of the kingdom is going to be preached in all nations. and We want to work towards that. God's the one who will determine when that job is complete. But until then, hands to the shovels and to the swords. We have a battle to fight. An enemy to wage war against. Captive souls that can be released to the proclamation of our gospel message. So, Verse 23, the Lord saved Israel that day and the battle passed beyond beth Aven. Do you believe that God desires to use His church today to glorify His name among the nations and in, in this city, in this community, that He is not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance? Then ask the Spirit to ignite within you the fire of faithful courage that burned within Jonathan and his armor-bearer. Remembering that it's that same fire of courage that burned perfectly and without interruption in our Lord Jesus Christ, who faced off against impossible odds, alone, against the most powerful forces of the universe, and conquered them, who was victorious over them by his life and his death and his resurrection. And he's now seated at the right hand of the Father in the place of authority where he reigns and he rules. And we now stand in him. We are seated with Christ Jesus in the heavenly places even now, Ephesians 2 tells us. That should give us hope. That should give us confidence to work for the glory of Jesus, for the spreading of the gospel, for the transformation of lives, that we would make disciples, that we would invest for the long run in our families, in the education of our children, seeking to bring all things under the lordship of Christ, because he is worthy the praise and the worship of every person on this planet. I'll close with these words from Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, I might include Jonathan and his armor bearer in there, the cloud of witnesses, Therefore, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set, us, set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter, the finisher of our faith. who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the place of authority at the right hand of the throne of God. Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you for my dear brothers and sisters here. Lord, use these words to ignite this kind of courage, this passion within us that we might be used however you see fit. I thank you for the work that you have already done here. I thank you for faithful men uh, such as Ben and Jordan who have led this congregation this past year, as humble servants, grateful for their hearts for you. Please guard them and guide them and i pray that for each one of my brothers and sisters here that you would establish them in the truth that we would be rooted and established in love and we'd have power together with all of your people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is your love and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge we love you father we thank you for your love for us and we commit our time to you in the name of jesus Amen.